Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're our guest this evening, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. If you will, everybody, take a Bible and be opening to the book of Acts. We'll be looking at the seventh chapter in the Bible that is in your pew. That'll be on 970 and 971. Uh, We'll have some slides tonight, but the scriptures themselves will not be on the slide, and we'll be looking at that one sermon or that one uh, discourse that Stephen gave. So be sure and open your Bible so we can study that together. What a wonderful, wonderful week or two that the Lord has blessed us with. The Lord's blessed us with a lot more than just a week or two that was wonderful, but just thinking back on the last week or two has been absolutely amazing. We are so thankful that uh, even again this morning to have visitors with us that uh, have, we were, uh, they were part of our car care clinic. We've had visitors with us that were, uh, just as, were just at the park on Sunday afternoon when we had our worship together. They joined us for that. They, they appreciated the congregation that they met and the way in which we worshiped. And we're back this morning. And we look forward to seeing all the ways that God will use uh, our influence uh, for Him. And let's be sure and continue to be prayerful about that. We are thankful for Doug McCormick leading singing last Sunday night here and David Harper preaching here. And we appreciate the wonderful job that those gentlemen did. We also uh, look forward to anticipation to this weekend. As you noticed in the announcements, we have three events this weekend and uh, the men's retreat. If you want to go only for the fish fry, Clint asked me to be sure and mention that to you, that you can go to Whispering Pines just for the fish fry, but be sure and let him know Brian Odom is going to be preparing the fish. He has plenty of fish. It will be delicious. If you can stay for Friday night and Saturday, it will conclude Saturday evening so that everybody can get home for Mother's Day. And uh, also keep in mind the Habitat for Humanity, the home. We are coming in at the end. You know how a house is built in 10 Saturdays and we are the last Saturday and uh, we only have 20 slots that we can fill and about half of those are already filled which means we need about half to fill. So if you can help with that on Saturday, be sure and either let JP know or there'll be sign-up sheets at the member kiosk. And then keep in mind the, the sponsor's day at the Mount Juliet Park. Our, mentioned to you before, our Little League Park is one of the largest Little League Parks in the nation. We serve thousands of kids as a community through this park. And what, what a wonderful way to say, hey, we're here too. The Mount Juliet Church of Christ serves, serves a lot of people and we want you to know about us and we're here uh, to be good neighbors. And so if you like talking about the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, that's all you have to do that day is just be under a booth and when people come around, you talk about the place you love. You talk about who you are and why you love being a part of this congregation. Be sure and, and again, sign up for that. Let JP know it's just another way for us to get outside of these walls to let people know that this church is the Lord's church, that it's a loving church, and that we want to reach out and we want to see another soul brought to the Lord. Uh, as oftentimes is said in this congregation, there's always room for one more. And what a wonderful Sunday morning it was to see one more added to the Lord's body. And let's make sure that we're doing what we can do to encourage Justin this morning, but also to be prayerful and think about how we can reach out to those this week. Who is it that you can invite? Who is it that you've invited, but it's been a while since you've invited them? Who is it that you're praying for? Be thinking of the ways that you can reach out and make a real difference in the lives of someone, not just on this earth, but for eternity. Those of you ladies that came to the shower today, there was a wonderful shower for Tansy Waldrop. Somebody probably accidentally picked up a pair of keys that 
uh, or a set of keys that was not yours. Uh, any of you ladies that were there, uh, if you have those keys, if you will just return them to me and I'll make sure they get to the rightful owner. But someone there in that setting probably did so. So we're not asking you if you did it because you probably don't know you did it. We're just asking, will you check your purse? Uh, because somebody probably has a set of keys in the bottom of your purse that does not belong to you. And that would really be helpful to the person that it does belong to. All right, as, as we consider what is a wonderful story in the book of Acts, it also it was interesting to me that I'd never seen this before uh, until I, I did this study this week on this particular story here coming out of the 6th chapter and into the 7th chapter of the life of Stephen. Have you ever thought about the fact that, and, and I know many of us have thought about this, I've never thought about how, you know, many times we call Luke a masterful writer. I've never thought about how the story of Stephen was such a smooth transition in the book of Acts. You remember that when Stephen was being stoned, you remember there in the 7th chapter in verse 58 that they took their coats off, those that were going to stone him. You know, they had to be able to free themselves up so that they could throw the rocks really hard so that they could kill him with all kind of brutality. And so they took their coats off and you remember they laid them at Saul's feet. What an interesting transition. You see, all up to this point, the emphasis had been upon the beginning of the church and the apostles that had been appointed up until this point in time. And then we see this story that moves a little bit away, if you will, from a concentration on the apostles. We have widows that have need. There needs to be seven more servants added. Those seven servants are added. One of those servants is Stephen. Stephen rises up in a bold way and he proclaims the truth to individuals that do not want to hear it. And they gnash on him in a beastly-like fashion. And they take his life. And of all people, they're laying the coats at... Their, their coats at Saul's feet. And then you remember, that takes us into the 8th chapter and then the ninth chapter, who's converted? That one that was wreaking havoc, and that's back in the 8th chapter, the one that was wreaking havoc upon the church is literally the one that now is converted to Jesus Christ and most of the rest of the book of Acts follows the trail of this missionary throughout many cities and state, uh, many nations. And so as, as we consider that, it's just interesting, as, as almost a sideline introduction, it's just interesting here that we see the story of Stephen as a transition. But even though it's a transition, nonetheless, it is of the utmost importance. This morning we looked at some things about the beginning or the setting for what would lead up to his words. We also skipped over to the end and we looked at some things that would be the conclusion of his words, including his death. But this evening, let's spend a few moments and let's look at some of the words themselves. Now, if you have your Bible open, you see here in Acts the 7th chapter, he actually began speaking in verse 2, and his words go all the way down to at least verse 53. And so in this short time, there is no way that we could study, you know, every uh, verse or paragraph in detail, but we will try to at least bring out some of the main points of interest and especially under... The, the study of asking a question of, is there a message that you would die for? for? For which message would you die for? And to think that here is a message that he boldly proclaimed. And when it came time at the end of that, to if he was going to stand by the message that he just spoke, he was going to die. And he didn't recant. He didn't start to stumble around. He didn't start showing signs of regret. 
He believed in this message to the end. Is there a message that you believe in to the end? What I'd like to do is for us to highlight some things about this message. And then at the end, I want to give you four brief bullets that will probably only take two to three minutes to share with you. That I believe that we all could agree that those four things are messages that we would die for. Let's go back to this man. When he answers, we look at what led up to this time before he answers in the sixth chapter. And let's go to this first slide here. And just to set the stage, if you weren't here this morning or if you just kind of missed out on the storyline, I just want to do this by review so that we all start out at the same point in this story. The word they is used several times in the sixth chapter beginning in the paragraph that begins in verse 8. If you just follow the word they, you start to get a pretty good idea of what is happening in this story. For example, in verse 10, he's talking about some Jews there and he says, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. You see, they wanted to put him in his place. They wanted to make him look foolish. They wanted to prove that he was wrong. They could not resist him. What he spoke was just, it was truth and it was too powerful. And so that leads us to 11. They secretly induced men to say, he's been blaspheming against Moses and God. 12. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they seized him and brought him before the council. 13. They also, now keep in mind they're bringing before the council, but they have to have something to say. Remember, he hasn't done anything wrong. So they set up false witnesses who says that he blasphemed against the holy place, that would be the temple and the law. And then we go to the pronoun we, for we have heard him say, and they say that now he's blaspheming against Jesus of Nazareth and against also the customs which Moses delivered to us. And so now the setting, as we go to 15, and all who sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as the face of an angel, and the high priest said, are these things so? Now's his opportunity. What is he going to say? Is it going to be a defense about him? No. He's really going to turn this as an offensive measure to say, I have some things that really I would like to tell you about your nation. You are representing the children of Israel. I'd like to tell you about your history. And what he's going to do, and I'd, I'd like for you to notice, it's on the right uh, side of, of your screen. Well, no, that's on another screen. If we'll go to the second screen real quick, let me show you this. As Look in um, verse 51, 52, and 53 of the seventh chapter. I'd like for you to see real quickly what he's moving toward because then uh, we can make a little bit quicker time actually going through the lesson itself. What is he leading toward? They have accused him of blasphemy. They've said, you've blasphemed against God, you've blasphemed against Moses. That was in verse 11. Down in verse 13 of the 6th chapter, they said, you've blasphemed against the temple, you've blasphemed against the law. In other words, they have literally made up these lies coming from every angle. We, we might say, like in debates and stuff, hot topics. They've hit on every core value. They've hit on every hot topic to say, look how wrong this man is. Now, he's going to take the truth. He's not going to make up lies. He's going to take the truth and what he is ultimately leading them to is here in verse 51, 52, and 53. You stiff-necked, that's stubborn. You stubborn and uncircumcised and hard in ears. Pause for just a moment. Do you remember the Jews? How much they hated Gentiles? You remember what they called them? Uncircumcised. 
And so he looks at these individuals that they hated the Gentiles and they called them uncircumcised and he calls them that. You're uncircumcised. Your heart and your ears are so hardened and so callous. You have been able to live a lie because you are the ones who are uncircumcised. That, when we, when we say, remember this morning we talked about how they moved on him in a beastly fashion. They grasp him. They're gnashing with their teeth. They grasp him. They drag him out of the city. And you say, what stirred them so much? It's language like this that stirred them so much. They probably absolutely could not stand to be called stiff-necked and uncircumcised. And then he goes on to say, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, that's Jesus, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the directions of the angels and not kept it. Now there's several things that we could bring out there, but for this lesson, notice this. The first thing he makes very clear. You want to talk about who's in the wrong? You want to talk about who's resisting the Spirit of God? You began with many false accusations against me, Stephen is saying. But he says, I tell you who's resisted the Spirit. It's been you guys. And not only is it you guys, but it's your fathers. Name me a prophet that's come ahead of time. A prophet sent by God that you haven't persecuted. Your fathers have harmed them or either taken their lives. And then he says, up to the great righteous one, Jesus Christ. Your fathers persecuted the prophets. You murdered the Messiah. What is he doing here? He's driving home the fact that they are the ones that resist the Spirit. They are the ones who reject the godly men that God has sent through to them throughout the ages. They are the one who are guilty of blasphemy. Now, notice the high points of how we get to this point. Let's drop back now. And they're on your screen, on the, the left-hand side of the screen. Let's, let's advance forward. On the left side of your screen there, you'll notice some breakdown of some high points here. In the second verse, in the seventh chapter, two through eight, we see that the key character here is Abraham. And for our time's sake tonight, I'd like for you to notice in verse two and verse uh, six what he says about Abraham. And he said, brethren, fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. Now wait a minute, you're trying to act like Judah is, is the great and holy place and that God never deals with anybody outside of your, your holy and your sacred land? You love Abraham, don't you? Oh, they loved Abraham. They had good reason to love Abraham. Well, when did God start working with Abraham? It wasn't while he was in Jerusalem. He started calling Abraham back when he was way over there in Mesopotamia. And even when he moved and he only came as far as Haran, he worked with him some more there. Well, now, when they finally came and had the land, he pointed out in verse 6 that Abraham didn't take inheritance of it, which is a real interesting thought. And I'm sorry, that's verse 5. And then we come to verse 6 and notice what he says. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. Did God work with them when they were taken over to Egypt? And now they're not in Judah anymore either. They're not in Jerusalem anymore. They're way down here in Egypt. Were they still God's people? Did God work with them? Did God deliver them? Yes. He's laying some groundwork here. And now he is locking and loading. And in the very next verse here, as he begins the ninth verse, he's going to start talking about Joseph. And he does it in a way that would be 
probably perhaps the most bold way he could do it and the most convicting way that he could do it. And notice what he says in 9. And the patriarchs, sons of Jacob, the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Hmm. Israel, you like to brag about yourself. You like to talk about how great you are. Who was it that sold Joseph into Egypt? Notice out of all the terms he could have chosen, he gives the term patriarch. He was your leaders. He was the father of the tribes. And notice how he tags on the end as if to say there was a separation. You didn't want Joseph around anymore, so you stayed up here and you sold your little brother. But where was God in all of this? Just to tag on the end of that, he reminds them, oh, you wanted to depart from him? But remember, God was with him. Now, as we go into the next major breakdown, it's in... 20 through 29, that leads us, of course, to the children of Israel needing to be delivered from the Egyptian bondage. And you remember now we begin the story as we study through the Old Testament, the Israelites' history, the story of Moses. And for these verses 20 through 29, we see that story revealed. For our time's sake tonight, I'd like for you to see especially verse 25. This was the time when Moses was was 40 years of age. And and just to make sure that you, you haven't forgotten this, remember... It's real easy to see Moses' lives in fragments of 40. We see uh, 40 years that he was in Pharaoh's palace. 40 years they went in the wilderness wilderness to uh, be a shepherd. 40 years he comes back to free the children of Israel and to lead them about. And just as they're about to go in the promised land, he dies. And so accurately and often we speak of the fact he was 80 years old when he led the children of Israel out of their bondage. But we learn something here in Acts 7 that is absolutely amazing. And the reason it's revealed to us is the Holy Spirit wanted Stephen to be able to convict them to say, you remember what he's working to? You are the guys that resist the Spirit. You are the guys that reject the godly men that God has sent to you. Notice what happened back, not when he was 80. This was back when he was 40 years old. He realizes he can no longer stay in the palace. He has to make a stand for God's people. Read verse 25. Moses supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And so it was from there, he thought that he was going to be leading the children of Israel out at the age of 40. Now, you see what's being implied here, strongly implied. In other words, he's saying to these individuals, you're accusing me? of rejecting the Spirit? You're accusing me of blasphemy? God sent Moses to you when he was 40, and it was Israel that would not accept the leader to give them their freedom. You see, he's showing them over and over, God gave you Joseph, what did you do to him, Israel? God gave you Moses, what did you do to him, Israel? And now, let's look as we read about this wandering in the wilderness here and, and God speaking to him. Is if you look in uh, verses 30 through 34, Moses is being called into this leadership role now at the age of 80. And I'd like for you to notice especially uh, verse 30. And when he was 40 years old, had passed an angel of the 
Lord appeared to him in a flame. I'm sorry. Uh, when he was, when 40 years had passed, because he would be 80 years old here, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Stephen here is brilliant. You know, we talked about earlier, he had wisdom and he spoke with the Spirit. And you see what he's doing here. They lived in the Holy Land. They lived in Jerusalem. Everybody else was a second-class citizen. Oh, really? Where was Moses when God spoke to him? He was way out in the wilderness. He was near Mount Sinai. And notice what that's called in 33. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. God's presence and God's power has worked in the lives of individuals outside of Jerusalem and outside of Judea all throughout time. He continues to hammer that fact home because you see, they were falsely accusing him of blaspheming the temple. And he was showing that God's presence has been alive and active in the life of men outside of the temple for ages. Now, we look at another highlight here as we look at the temple. And uh, then we'll start concluding this lesson and give the bullets. Look, if you will, in the uh, 7th chapter, verse 44 through 50, is where we see the bullets about... I mean, where we see the paragraph about the temple. And notice what he says in 47, just getting right to the point. In 47, but Solomon built him a house. Remember the tabernacle? Moses was given exactly what the pattern was supposed to be, and he followed it exactly as God said. He even told how many loops was to be in the curtains and what color they were to be and everything. But then there came a time where the tabernacle that could be taken down, transported from place to place, it was replaced by a temple that was absolutely one of the most magnificent buildings probably that's ever been built. And so we, we look at this magnificent place that Solomon had built for God's temple, and it was a, a wonderful thing. But God wanted to make sure that that was brought back into perspective. And so notice what he says through Stephen here in 47. Yes, Solomon built it, but look at 48 and following. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all of these things? Have you ever studied ancient kings' thrones? You know, if, if you read back in the Old Testament and you see Solomon's where, where it was ivory laid in gold and it was massive with armrest. And it told how many steps would come up to this throne. And it told how many lions would be on those steps. And can you just imagine Stephen painting the picture in their mind? Oh, so you think everything about the presence of God is inside a house that you built, mankind, Israel, built with your own hands. And you know what God thinks about that? God says, I'm up in heaven. And heaven's my throne. Look how beautiful it is. You don't walk up to a throne and say, Oh, look at the footstool. Isn't that a beautiful footstool? He says, God is on the throne and that's heaven. And you know what earth is? 
Earth is just a footstool. And you know what else earth is, he says? It's what God made. And if you think you're going to make a place to put God, that's foolish reasoning. Friends, I believe that it's a wonderful blessing, a tool that can be used to God's glory. But if we think that we've spent millions of dollars to construct a building that houses God, we're just as guilty of blasphemy and misunderstanding as the children of Israel. This structure is just a tool. And we ought to use it and a multiplicity of other tools to reach the world that is about us. To worship our Almighty God and to edify each other. Now it's at this point that he's defended himself. And I would like to take you back to probably two of the strongest points as we close this part of the lesson before we go to those bullets. I'd like for you to notice back in 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. I want to show you what I believe is two of the strongest passages of blasphemy. You see, they accused him of blasphemy. And he says, you tell me, who was it that looked at Moses, God's servant, and said, who made you the ruler? It wasn't Stephen that blasphemed against Moses. It was Israel that blasphemed against Moses. And then skip down in 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel... The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And you remember what they did? Moses, now notice this. Moses was the one who said, God's going to raise up a prophet like me. He's going to be the great one. And we know he's he's prophesying. Moses is prophesying of Jesus. And so God did raise up that prophet. And what did they do to that prophet? They executed that prophet. And now after this lesson's all done, it's almost like Stephen is standing with his hands on his hips saying, now you tell me who's blasphemed. You tell me who has spoken against Moses. You tell me who has spoken against the Savior. Tell me who's resisted God. Tell me who has resisted the godly men that God has continued to send to you. And it's with that kind of boldness that is nothing more than the history of their people that they gnash on him and they take his life. Friends, it is a lesson that you and I could probably greatly could appreciate even more so if we could understand all of the customs and the culture around Israel and those people. Stephen knew it well. Stephen spoke the truth. He believed that he delivered a message about Jesus Christ that was worth dying for. As we close this evening, I want to ask you, what message is it that you would die for? Would you die for a message that leads to eternal life? You remember when he was dying, he wasn't fearful that this was the end. 
he realized that this was a transition to take him from this earth into eternity. You and I are going to die by some message. We can either believe the lies of the world or we can believe the truth. But our life and our conduct and our heart will take some kind of message to the grave. Wouldn't we be wise to say, I'll die for the message that offers eternal life. Second, I'll die for a message that does not change. Does this stand out to you as something very powerful? That whenever he talks with them about the message of Jesus Christ, he's able to go back in time more than a thousand years and talk about the way things were. Because notice, our message doesn't change. Friends, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we don't have to say, okay, I believe the message today, I'll live and I'll die for it. But then what if that message changes next year? Isn't it wonderful that, that, that a young man this morning can, can give his life to an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if God wills him to live to an old age, he can still stand by the very same gospel that he obeyed May of 2009. Friends, that's powerful. Because we live in a world where everybody, it seems, just lives by the moment and whatever moves them at that time. And then we wake up and we say, why did I make all these mistakes? You know who doesn't make as many mistakes? People who live and die by a gospel that does not change. We make our best decisions when we look long term, and that is into the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. Third, a gospel that's worth dying for is a gospel that it doesn't change, but it changes people. Have you ever seen someone change and it break your heart? Oh, he's back to drinking again. Oh, she's using drugs again. Oh, he's back to running around on his wife again. We all have seen those changes that whenever we hear about it, it breaks our heart because we know that they are destructive. But what about this change? What about a change that's produced by the gospel of Jesus Christ where the result is the fruit of the Spirit's produced? People have a commitment to a God who is loving and who guides with wisdom for eternity. But finally, wouldn't you die for a message that brings forgiveness, that brings grace, that brings an almighty God into our life as a father? Friends, we're not talking about sacrificing and settling for something we're talking about something that promotes us to a state that we don't even deserve and is far better than what we could ever have. No wonder, no wonder Stephen was willing to stand by the gospel of Jesus Christ and look at the ones who were stoning him and say, don't lay this to their charge. Why? He remembered a gospel that he had obeyed that the only hope that he had to be saved was forgiveness. And he died living that gospel. As he said, I can forgive too.
Have you obeyed that gospel? If you're not a child of God, we would love to see you commit your life to a God and to His gospel that's worth living for and dying for. If you've begun that journey and lost your way, it's worth coming back to. If we can